Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Montite. This time, probing the pay gap which starts a lot earlier than you might think. For 12 and 13-year-olds, we don't have a wage gap, but once they hit 14, we see the first emergence of the first wage gap. And you might assume the best educated among us would command a decent raise, but... Female MBAs who were asking for raises just as much as their male counterparts got the raise far less often. Women and the Fight for Equal Pay, coming up on The Broad Experience. So as I record this show, Equal Pay Day is less than a week away. It's on April 10th this year. This is a day when women's earnings supposedly catch up with what men earned last year. It symbolises the pay gap between men and women. In the US, women earn on average about 80 cents for every dollar a man does. But of course, there are plenty of variations depending on the woman and the job. And we'll get into some of that. Women's pay is a big topic, so I'm splitting it into two shows. This one and a short show I'll release next week. In these shows, we're going to talk about women receiving equal pay for equal work, why pay transparency can be so hard to come by, the so-called motherhood penalty, and a lot more. But first, I want to introduce you to someone who thinks about the gender pay gap from a bit of a different perspective. Yasemin Basen Casino grew up in Turkey, but today she's a sociology professor at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Her research has always focused on gender and work. And one day, several years ago, she was sitting in a coffee shop in New York, thinking about the pay gap and some of the theories behind it. And as she sat there sipping her skim latte, she began to notice something. In the coffee shop, I was surrounded by, you know, kids and teenagers who were working. And it, in that moment, it occurred to me that a substantial portion of our workforce are teenage workers and we just don't study them. Research on the pay gap had always focused on working adults. But in America, lots of teenagers work as well. Some kids start part-time jobs as young as 12. And as she looked at the young workforce in the cafe, Yasmin wondered, is there any difference in what teenage boys and girls are being paid? Or is everything fair and equal? So she began to study teenagers' wages. And she didn't just want to look at people in their mid to late teens. She wanted to look at tweens as well. For 12 and 13-year-olds, we don't have a wage gap. But once they hit 14, we see the first emergence of the first wage gap. So what is happening at 14? Well, at 14, I think a lot of uh, jobs are becoming available, more uh, employee-type jobs, more uh, retail jobs, service sector jobs. And at 14, boys quickly move into them and girls kind of stay in freelance jobs. And when you say freelance jobs, what do you mean? Oh, mostly babysitting, but also uh, snow shoveling and doing yard work, working for mom and dad. 
Okay, but why are teenage girls staying in those less formal jobs around the neighborhood while boys are moving on? That's an interesting question. We're not so sure why that is, but I think uh, they take advantage of uh, the available things on the market. But it's not to say that's the only source of the uh, wage gap. Even within freelance jobs, we see a lot of gender inequality between boys and girls. Girls are just getting paid less for their freelance work. Well, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Let's take that example of babysitting, because I have a feeling that many of my listeners, their first job will have been as a babysitter. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Many girls work as babysitters, but today there are a lot of boys who do as well. And and boy babysitters are actually in demand, especially babysitting for um, smaller boys and doing sports with them or being just, you know, older brother figures for them. But if we compare their wages, girls are paid much less for their work. Uh, When they negotiate, they tend to be uh, turned down more, but they also do uh, more care work and more unpaid work. They stay after their shift to talk to the mothers. They come in a little bit early to talk to parents. And they have a lot of -of out-of-pocket expenses. They buy, you know, worksheets for the children. And in their free time, I've seen a lot of babysitters who, you know, study math so they can teach the children. Wow. So that that typically um, dedicated female workers. Oh, absolutely. And I've spoken to some uh, male babysitters as well, and their experience seems to be vastly different. They don't have any unpaid hours. Their time is respected. They don't have any unpaid uh, expenses. And parents are more likely to negotiate with them. They respect their time and they give them more money. How much more? She spoke to teenagers in the New York, New Jersey area. And she says most of the girls got paid in the $10 an hour range. The boys, they got closer to $15 an hour. And I think the biggest difference was they were asked... You know, girls were usually told, this is what we pay. And boys were asked, how much do you charge? That is so interesting. I found that very puzzling that, you know, most of the time, mothers did the negotiating with the babysitters, but even they had biases about what to pay men and women. But if you think about it, it's not that surprising. We all marinate in the same societal broth and society has entrenched views about what women should be and how we should act. We absorb those views as well. I've mentioned this elsewhere, but if you're interested in learning more about women's bias against women, there's a great podcast by the BBC show Analysis about just this. I'll post a link to the episode at thebroadexperience.com. Back to the parents who were reluctant to pay teenage girls as much as boys for their services, Yasmin says that points to another long-held belief about women. It goes to our assumptions about how much we value women's time, especially when it comes to care work. You know, these um, young babysitters should really care about the child, so why do they ask for money? It's almost like love and care is in uh, in opposition to money. Whereas they probably don't expect the same caring instincts from a guy. They understand that for him, it's a job, and they reward him accordingly. And it's interesting. A lot of the male babysitters I talked to were talking about how the parents uh, saw them. They were respected more. They were seen more entrepreneurial because they started their babysitting business. Whereas the girls were just, you know, individual girls just doing babysitting. So even the social meaning attributed to the same job was different. I wondered if the boys themselves noticed these differences. For some things they did notice. And and when I asked some of the questions, they thought they were ridiculous questions. Like, for example, I asked them, do they cook for the family or do they run errands? And 
they thought this was incredibly strange because they never did those things before. Whereas almost all the female babysitters said at some point they ran errands, they cooked for the family. Again, we're conforming to female stereotypes here. We're hardworking. We want to please. We enjoy helping people. And employers love it. Why wouldn't they? But Yasmin didn't just look at neighborhood jobs like babysitting. Quite a few teens and young adults work in retail part-time. And Yasmin found some differences here, too. Male and female teens are drawn to brands that reflect what they feel is their persona. They already like the brand's look, and they want to be associated with it. But she says there's a difference in how men and women progress at these stores. For one thing, there's the pressure to keep up the look, to represent the brand on the shop floor, to wear the clothes, use the right makeup. Young women are getting in a lot of debt to be able to get the jobs they want and keep the jobs they want. And they're told, you're here for the brand, you care for the clothes, and why do you need a raise? She says the attitude managers had with young women was basically, you're lucky to be here in the first place. And she found young women have another issue to contend with. Many are told they're good with people and put into jobs on the shop floor, jobs that involve a lot of customer contact. Most of the time, they ended up being shouted at. Because customers, you know, we can be difficult. The guys were more likely to be funneled into jobs with less people contact and better prospects of promotion. She says a lot of the young women she spoke to became demoralized. It's all about the language and the little messages we give young people. When we tell them, you know, you're so good with people, are they really hearing a positive message? I mean, a lot of the women were hearing, you're not good for management or you're not good with money if you're just good with people. Yasmin contends all this has a long-term effect. She spent time both interviewing teens and looking at data that tracks young people's lives. There's this study called the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth. It follows American teenagers into their adult years. We could see the teenagers, the female teenagers who worked as teens... When they get to be 29 and 30, there's a cost of being a girl and there's a cost of being a working girl. So they did make a lot less, approximately $2,000 a year less than their male counterparts. Yasmin says being a working teenage girl contributes to that wage gap. Why is it that that early work experience has this effect? How do, how do its tentacles reach out over the years? How does that manifest itself? Why are they earning less? Well, that's an interesting question, I, and I was interested in how it happens. And, and one of the reasons I could come up with was, as we go to work, we don't just learn about the world of work or how to go to work or, or you know, time management or you know, work ethic, but we also internalize the gender dynamics of the workplace and the problems of the workplace. And, and I think one of the things that we teach young women from an early age is that their time is not valued, that when they negotiate... They're not going to be paid more. And it was discouraging to, you know, talk to all these, you know, young women who were wonderful. And, but they also were, they had this learned helplessness of when I ask for more pay, I'm not going to get it. And when, because actually that's something I didn't ask you earlier, taking babysitting as an example, had the women actually asked for more pay? I mean, I'm, I'm curious as to how many 14, 15 year old girls do try and negotiate. Oh, a lot of them did negotiate. And, you know, after a while, they asked for more pay, but they were really surprised that and discouraged that they didn't get it. And many of them, you know, there were different reasons why they were turned down. But 
Many of them had this idea that, oh, if I ask for money, I'm just not going to get it. Some of them had even unpaid hours. You know, most of them talked about the fact that they worked for people they knew. So usually we find jobs through our networks, but knowing the person that you work for, it makes it harder to ask for more money. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very awkward. It is very awkward. And many of them talked about this awkwardness of they just didn't know how to talk about money or there wasn't the culture of talking about money. And for some of them, it wasn't even the negotiating. They didn't know the starting point. And there was this lack of information, especially about freelance jobs of how much to ask for. A lot of you probably started your working lives babysitting or you're a parent of a teenager who babysits or you hire local teens to babysit your kids. Does this ring bells for you? While I was making this show, I came across a few articles from 2016 about a North Carolina mother who posted on Facebook that she likes to ask teenagers their hourly rate. And the girls usually reply, whatever you want to pay me is fine. She went on to say that this was not okay and that young women needed to learn to negotiate, including her own daughter. But who's teaching them these skills? Not schools and usually not parents either. But someone's talking to the boys about how to set up their babysitting businesses, as they think of them, or encouraging them to move into the more formal workforce at 14. Maybe because we still think of men as the providers. We still socialise boys to expect that'll be their role. That's one theory I have. And maybe this is part of the same thing. But I think this goes deep into the area of money as a discussion topic with girls versus boys. Studies still show parents are more likely to talk about money with their sons than their daughters, and that helps normalise money for young men, which is perhaps why male babysitters... Even though there were very few of them, they magically knew how much to ask for, and they felt more comfortable talking to each other about money and asking about money and going into the job interview. They just knew how much you know, male babysitters got paid, whereas even though there were so many female babysitters, they just didn't know. Yasmin Basen Casino. Her latest book is The Cost of Being a Girl. But listen, I'm a big believer in the power of negotiation, and I'd hate this discussion about teenagers to put off anyone who's already wary of negotiating. Yes, we know some studies show women are penalised for negotiating because we're bucking the stereotype of the nice, pliant woman when we ask for more money. There'll be a bit more on this later in the show. I don't care. I negotiate anyway. There are ways to do it that work. Take it from someone who really hated the thought of it and became better at it. And it is so satisfying when you take part in a successful negotiation. I haven't ever done a full show on this topic, partly because in the past several years, it's become hugely covered in the press. And I figured everyone knew about it or found it boring at this point. But if you'd like an episode of The Broad Experience on negotiation, let me know. If enough of you hit me up, I'll do it. Negotiation is such a useful skill in so many areas of life. It is not just about asking for money. In a minute, why pay transparency should matter to employer and employee. When people better understand why they're paid the way they're paid, we've found that they're more likely to stay at their employer's longer. Don't go away. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So one thing I'm going to say right off the bat is I'm not going to do a deep dive into all the reasons for the pay gap in these two shows. There are great resources online and other podcasts that talk about that in depth. I particularly recommend a recent episode of the Harvard Business Review podcast, Women at Work. The episode is called Mind the Wage Gap. But to talk in broad strokes for a minute, the number we hear a lot, and I'm taking a US number here because that's where I live, is that women earn about 80% of what men do, so 80 cents on every man's dollar. That number, what economists call the uncontrolled pay gap, is calculated by looking at all working women and all working men in all jobs. And some of what contributes to that? Women doing so-called gendered jobs, jobs that pay less because they're female-dominated, women working fewer hours than men, and the fact that so few women are in positions of power, which of course pay more. And there may be a good dollop of plain old discrimination as well, but we can't measure that. We'll come back to that in a bit. But let's talk about the so-called controlled pay gap for a minute. That's when you look specifically at the pay of men and women doing equal work. If you're trying to really understand the argument around equal pay for equal work, that gap is a lot smaller when you control for job title, location, years of experience, skills, all of those things that might impact pay, rightfully so, the gap shrinks. That's Lydia Frank, a vice president with Seattle-based PayScale. They do lots of research on everything related to compensation. We're trying really to help companies understand, um, organizations understand how to pay their people. And we're trying to help individuals understand what they're worth in the current market. So what Lydia said just then is that when you look at men and women doing equal work, the pay gap is far smaller. But it is still there. And... The gap actually increases every step up the the ladder. It's smallest for individual contributors, but it actually gets bigger for those in management at a director level, at an executive level. And it also is bigger in some specific industries. So oil and gas, for example, has around a 7, 7.5% gap. Um, finance also has a relatively large gap. And that's for men and women working in the same jobs. Now, some of you may know the work of Harvard researcher Claudia Golden, and she's featured in that HBR podcast I just mentioned, Women at Work. She's devoted years to studying the pay gap, and she's found one big issue contributing to it is flexibility, or the lack of it. She says employers reward long hours and FaceTime, and women still carry most of the caregiving responsibilities in their partnerships. They tend to work fewer hours than men. She says women in industries with more flexible hours, where they have the leeway to just get the work done, but don't necessarily have to be in an office between nine and six every day, their wage gaps are a lot smaller. Which leads us to the topic of motherhood. And as some of you raised with me in a discussion about pay on Facebook, there is a motherhood penalty. Payscale has done some research on that. 
And we saw what has been shown in some other studies as well, which was women with children made less, um, not only than women without children, but also we saw that for men, when they had children, they actually made slightly more than men that didn't have children. So there was that kind of daddy bonus, mommy penalty effect going on. Great. I think one argument around that tends to be, oh, you know, mothers often make less because they have to take more time off, basically, to, or they choose to, you know, they choose to take time off to care for children and do, and they don't work as many hours, right? That's, that tends to be a common argument. Um, So we did dig into that a little bit. And we actually asked both men and women, how often they were taking off time from work in order to take care of family responsibilities. And we actually saw that um, when we compared the women and men who were taking the most time off, men did not see an impact to their compensation for taking time away for family, but women did. And it seems to me this is just plain old prejudice, the idea that women are less dedicated to work if they have kids, but men are just as dedicated if they have kids. It's a mindset thing, and I think it'll only change over time if much larger numbers of men, including bosses, get and take parental leave and split those home responsibilities more equally, because that's the only way men and women are going to be seen differently. As we talked about in a recent show, society has a little trouble catching up to where men and women are themselves with their roles. It takes a long time for views to change. Another topic that came up with some of you on Facebook was pay transparency. Why is there a silence around who earns what and why do we feel like we're engaging in subterfuge just trying to work out how much our peers earn so we can be paid fairly? I said to Lydia, you know, the Me Too movement has raised a lot of women's voices and not just on sexual harassment and assault. Women are more willing now to challenge their employers on lots of things, including pay. But are companies willing to talk? I think that often people and organizations fear that transparency means all or nothing. It means everybody knows what everybody makes or you know only what's on your paycheck. And we really feel like there's several steps along the way (laughs) that it's really a spectrum. You know, so there are, I think, opportunities for organizations to be a bit more transparent. And we really do believe that that fosters trust with employees. When people better understand why they're paid the way they're paid, we've found that they're more likely to stay at their employers longer, and they're more likely to be highly satisfied. Their research also found that understanding the pay process, feeling like it was fair, that has more of an effect on people's intent to stay in a job than being paid at or above market rate. Which is startling in some ways. You'd think, oh, the more money you throw at someone, the more they're going to be loyal to the company, right? If they feel like they're making, you know, really good money. But that really wasn't as impactful around around those engagement metrics for employees as feeling like they really, truly understood the process and they felt like it was fair and transparent. She says, as for women's recently unleashed frustration, really a boiling over of years of frustration at the inequities of working life. I do think it's all interconnected. You know, when we 
are seeing a, a disparity around pay between men and women. So much of it, that big 80 something cents on the dollar pay gap we've been talking about has to do with the fact that women aren't in power. You know, they're not the CEOs of companies most often. They're not founders in great numbers. They're not getting funding when they do try to found companies. She says when Equal Pay Day arrives this year, her company is naming it Equal Power Day because so much of the pay gap is down to women having less powerful roles than men. But even then, as Lydia said earlier, the data shows that as women become more powerful and earn more, the pay gap with men doing the same work actually widens. Instead of 2 or 3%. What we found is that for C-level women it was more like six or seven percent, like the gap grew um, at every stage. And part of that could be that, you know, if women typically are getting less in terms of raises, then over time that starts to accumulate. Or it could be that when you get to those, those big, powerful positions, that there's just even more kind of bias coming into play, whether it's conscious or unconscious. She says it's tough to completely dissect that without doing more research. But listen to this. A couple of years ago, Payscale did a survey that looked at who was asking for raises and if they got the raise or not. And if they didn't ask, why didn't they ask? 31,000 people took part in this survey. And one of the things that we saw that was really interesting in that was when we looked at it by degree level, female MBAs who were asking for raises just as much as their male counterparts got the raise far less often. Yup. 48% of women with MBAs got the raise they asked for. 61% of male MBAs got their raise. And you would think of anyone, of any degree level, an MBA, you know, they're they're taught to negotiate, right? Like that's a key part of um, MBA curriculum. And the fact that women so, so often were seeing poor results around, you know, actually receiving a raise if they asked for it was definitely interesting because we weren't seeing that same kind of impact across other degree levels. I mean, that really does suggest it's plain old bias at play there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. To, we can't say for sure, because there's more, I think, study that would have to go into that. But it certainly points that way. Now, I know I have plenty of listeners with MBAs. When you hear this, what do you think? Does this reflect your experience? Have you had more difficulty getting the raise you want as you've climbed the career ladder? Or not at all? What do you think lies behind these figures? Lydia says the difficulty highly educated women seem to have negotiating as they progress, it could lead to the disparities that exist right at the top. You know, we think about who typically is going to rise to a CEO position. It's often somebody with an MBA, right? So the fact that female CEOs are are seen lower pay than their male counterparts is not terribly surprising to me, knowing that female MBAs in general tend to uh, not get raises when they ask for them um, to the same degree that their male MBA peers do. And, you know, part of it could be the the industry. You know, we did see that certain industries, finance was a big one, that tend to be male-dominated, tended also to have the largest controlled uh, pay gaps between men and women. So, you know, it'd be interesting, too, to dig in 
I mean, there's so few female CEOs that it's difficult, but if you dug into it by industry um, and kind of the disparity in pay between female CEOs and male CEOs to try to understand if industry seemed to have an impact on that gap, that would be really interesting too. Yeah. We just have to get more women actually in the CEO position so there's enough data. (laughs) In next week's show, we'll talk more about pay transparency how to get it, and how not to go about getting it. And we'll pay a visit to Iceland, where a new gender pay law just went into effect. Men in Iceland are used to the claims of women and accepted and supported. But at the same time, we've had a rather polarised debate. Maybe that's because of the strong women's movement. You know, you, you mobilise the resistance when women raise their voices. That's coming up next time. If you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends. Send them a link to the website so they can have a look around. Talking of which, as usual, you'll find show notes and a transcript under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. I will see you next week for part two. Until then, I'm Ashley Miltite. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.